This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. All I ask is, whoever's left in the city of Oakland, please remember to turn off the lights when you leave. The Oakland A's, in light of their impending move to Las Vegas, have one of, if not the worst record in baseball. And loyal A's fans, a fan base that have stuck behind the team once owned by the innovative and autocratic owner Charlie Finley, have stayed away from the Coliseum in droves evoking a nickname once derived by ESPN sportscaster Chris Berman as the Mausoleum. The A's will be the last of a trio of teams from the East Bay to relocate within the last few years and will leave that city what I call the West Coast City of Champions without a team and maybe once again without an identity. Hello sports fans and welcome back to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host Dana Augusta and glad, grateful and thankful for taking time out of your busy day or evening or night to give us a listen and reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you may hear us. On this episode of the program, we will delve into the sports history of the city of Oakland, California. There was a time in the early 1970s, Oakland was the home of three teams that were at the pinnacle of success in their respective leagues. Between 1972 and 1976, the city of Oakland celebrated five, count them, five world championships between the A's, the Raiders, and the Warriors. In the sports world of Oakland, back then in the early 70s, Oakland was the place to be. That's our main event, and later in the show, highlighting Oakland's contribution to sports history, we'll send a shout out to who I call the voice of Oakland. This renaissance man with the handlebar mustache had one of the most famous catchphrases in sports history, and one of of my biggest sports broadcasting idols. The one-time play-by-play man is still my biggest influence. And of course, we have a special top five that spotlights the most memorable sports moments to happen in the city of Oakland, such as the game that no one saw the ending to, a baseball team doing something that only the mighty New York Yankees had accomplished, and one of the most dramatic games in NFL postseason history, one that many sports writers called Super Bowl eight and a half, but still lives on to this day by another nickname. All of that coming up on this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we put a historical spin on current sports headlines and a member of the Sports History Network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the sports yesteryear. Hosted by Ross Bliley, the Pigskin Tales Podcast takes you on a journey through life of pro football stars such as Ernie Nevers, Red Grange, and Fran Tarkenton. Plus, You might not know them real well, but you can hear stories about Bill Brown, Grady Alderman, and Dave Osborne. 
You can learn more on these players at sportshistorynetwork.com backslash podcasts backslash pigskin dash tales. Hello, welcome back to the program. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and of this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, which is a member of the Sports History Network. Oakland, California, city of commerce, city of industry, and also a city with no there there. However, it is a city that has a very special place in the history of professional sports in this country. It isn't like the other major sports cities of the West Coast like L.A. or San Francisco or Seattle for that matter. Yet for a West Coast city, it has more in common with Cleveland or Pittsburgh or Baltimore or Philly. It's a blue-collar, gritty, in-your-face sort of town. And the teams that once called Oakland home personified those traits in every conceivable way. This season, the Oakland Athletics, who had appeared in six World Series and won four World Championships since their relocation from Kansas City in 1966, are going through one of their worst seasons ever with the impending move to Las Vegas hanging over the franchise like a big dark storm cloud. Yet this season's highlight may have took place on the night of June the 14th. The loyal fans of the A's staged what they called a reverse boycott, where as many as 27,000 fans showed up to the Coliseum voicing their displeasure of the moves that A's owner John Fisher made during his tenure as owner of the now lame duck A's. It was also the same day that the Nevada State Senate approved a measure to open a door to finance a new ballpark that, according to some estimates, may be located across the street from the MGM Grand. Fisher, according to many baseball analysts and officials, essentially sabotaged the team for the attendance to be down and to open the door for his team's relocation to Sin City. If the A's leave Oakland, they would follow the Raiders to Vegas, and to complicate matters even more, the Warriors relocated from their original home in the Bay Area in San Francisco where they moved to from Philly in 1962. Oakland, by West Coast standards, is through and through a sports city. Despite its rough beginnings, their fans are the most loyal and the most passionate of any fans west of the Rocky Mountains. In the late 1950s, Oakland, California was looked upon as the town in the shadow of San Francisco. Yeah, it was true that the city of Oakland was looked upon as maybe a step or maybe several steps behind the more affluent and more prestigious neighbors from across the bay. At around this same time, however, a couple of businessmen began to draw plans for a new football league to run in direct competition with the more established NFL. They would base their teams in cities that were not NFL cities at the time, such as Dallas and Buffalo, Houston, and Denver. Also placing teams in cities with large media markets, which were obviously New York and Los Angeles. One of the cities on the list of this new American Football League was the city of Minneapolis. Yet right before the new league got off the ground, the NFL rushed in to steal the Minneapolis market away from the American Football League. Faced with this dilemma, the AFL decided on another city to place their eighth charter franchise, preferably on the West Coast to to join the newly formed Los Angeles Chargers, maybe in the Bay Area. Yeah, of course. 
Oakland. From this began the life of the city of Oakland, California as a major league city. This new life as a big league city didn't get off to a promising start. It was more like a rough, rocky start as the newly minted Oakland Raiders stumbled out of the gate. In their early years, the Raiders earned the rather dubious nickname as the Orphans of the East Bay, mostly because of shaky ownership, worse than ideal finances, and also they had no place to call home, at least in the city of Oakland, that is. The Raiders' inaugural season saw themselves play home games across the bay in San Francisco at historic Kizar Stadium, sharing the stadium with the local NFL rival San Francisco 49ers. One year later, the team would move to future home of the Niners and the then home of the San Francisco Giants, Candlestick Park. It was so precarious for the Raiders in their early years that the team nearly went bankrupt. In the save today was the owner of the Buffalo Bills, Ralph Wilson, who loaned Wayne Valley, the cash-strapped Raiders owner, $400,000 to stay afloat in exchange for a minority stake in the team. At that point, the Raiders were saved, albeit off the field, but the team's fortunes on the field were less than spectacular. After a respectful 6-8 record in 1960, the team went 2-12 in 1961 and 1-13 in 1962, which in that span included a 19-game losing streak. In that 1962 season, the Raiders finally had a place to call their own, even though it was temporary. Wayne Valley had threatened to move the team unless a stadium could be built in Oakland. Now, where have we heard that before? As the season began, the Raiders were moving to 18,000-seat Frank Yule Field, which would be later expanded to a whopping 22,000 seats. The stadium, which we are using the term very loosely, would serve at the Raiders' home until their new state-of-the-art complex would be completed on the outskirts of town. The stadium was named after Francis J. Yule, a city councilman, Raiders booster, and the owner of Chapel of the Oaks, a well-known Oakland mortuary. Yes, the stadium was named after an undertaker. Ah, Oakland. By 1963, the Raiders had hired a new coach and general manager from their in-state rival San Diego Chargers by the name of Al Davis. And he changed the course of not only this cash-strapped, ill-begotten franchise, but its image. Before the 1963 season, the Raiders' colors were actually black and gold, and their uniforms closely resembled the Chicago Bears. Yet when, the, when Davis arrived, he changed the colors to their more familiar black and silver, and gave them silver helmets and incorporated the famous swashbuckling pirate, which is one of the most iconic logos in all sports. From there, the team took off, and by 1967, the Raiders had went from 1-13 to an AFL championship, crushing the Houston Oilers 40-7 in the brand new Oakland Alameda County Coliseum. In addition to the Raiders, a new team would call the Coliseum home. That very year, when the almost equally financial unstable Kansas City Athletics would move to the East Bay with their flamboyant owner, Charles Oscar Finley. Located right next door to the Coliseum was the brand new Oakland Coliseum Arena, where the short-lived California Golden Seals of the National Hockey League would call home. Of the 1967 expansion teams of the National Hockey League, 
The Golden Seals were the least impressive and least successful of their expansion brethren, such as the LA Kings, Philadelphia Flyers, Minnesota North Stars, Buffalo Sabres, and St. Louis Blues. By 1976, the Seals would be out of the, out of the Golden State entirely and relocated to Cleveland, where they became the Cleveland Barons. By the end of the 1960s, Oakland, which had began the decade with barely a pro sport pulse, now had three teams. And little did anyone know, the 70s would be the golden era of pro sports in Oakland. As the Raiders were now cemented as a bona fide NFL power, the A's were steadily improving on the diamond, with the likes of Reggie Jackson, Sal Bando, Burt Campanaris, Jim Catfish Hunter, and Raleigh Fingers. A new team was about to move in but were already, that were already familiar with the Bay Area. The San Francisco Warriors, who had moved to the Bay Area in the early 1960s, moved across the Bay to Oakland, where they were renamed the Golden State Warriors. This was in 1971. The Warriors were a solid team led by Hall of Famers Rick Barry and Nate Thurman, and they were in the NBA Finals just four years earlier. So, by the early 1970s, Oakland had four pro sports franchises and were set for the first of many championship parades. In 72, the Oakland A's with their dazzling collection of all-stars won the American League Western Division title for the second year in a row with the hard-hitting Reggie Jackson, Joe Rudy, and the pitching of Raleigh Fingers, Vida Blue, and Jim Catfish Hunter. After dispatching the Detroit Tigers in the American League Championship Series, the A's, managed by Dick Williams, were in the World Series for the first time since 1931 when they were in, the, when they were in Philadelphia and managed by the legendary Connie Mack. Their opponents in the 1972 Fall Classic were the Cincinnati Reds, the Big Red Machine. Now that series was a contrast of styles. The, the Reds were a straight-laced, buttoned-up outfit with stars such as Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, and Joe Morgan. And they took on the age with their bright yellow and green double-knit uniforms, long hair and mustaches and beards. In the lead-up to the series, actually, the sports writers called this matchup the Hairs versus the Squares. Now, despite the A's being without the services of Reggie Jackson, who had suffered a leg injury during the Detroit series, the A's behind surprise star Gene Tennis defeated the Reds in seven games for Oakland's first sports, first pro sports title. For the A's, it would be the first of three in a row. The A's would beat the Mets in 1973, and to win their third in a row, they knocked off the Los Angeles Dodgers in the very first All-California World Series. Meanwhile, the fellow tenants of the Oakland Coliseum, the Raiders, would maintain their status as an NFL power. Led by Al Davis and coached by John Madden, the Raiders would be a perennial playoff participant, but would fall short of the prize, losing to Baltimore in 1970 in the Duel in the Dust, losing to Pittsburgh thanks to the Immaculate Reception in 1972, and then losing to Miami in 1973 in a sweltering Orange Bowl in January. In 1974, however, the Raiders would avenge the Dolphins in the Sea of Hands game in Oakland, a game which is considered one of the greatest playoff games in NFL history as well as having one of the greatest endings. Yet, they would be victimized again, losing to the Steelers again in the AFC Championship game. So, let's take a step back here. 
The Raiders have been one of the most consistent winners in pro football since 1966. The A's had won three consecutive World Series. And now it was time for their basketball neighbors from across the parking lot to raise a championship banner of their own. The Golden State Warriors, who have been somewhat of an afterthought since their move to the Bay Area, yet in the spring of 1975, the Warriors, coached by former guard Al Adels and led by Hall of Famers Rick Barry, Keith Wilkes, defeated the Chicago Bulls and advanced to the NBA Finals for the first time since 1967. There waiting for them were the Washington Bullets, armed with the best record in the NBA at 60 and 22, which had stars Elvin Hayes and Wes Unsell. Now many experts said that this would be a very quick series. Well, they were right. It was a quick series, but it was a Golden State Warriors sweep. The Warriors, who entered the playoffs with a 48 and 34 record, defeated the Bullets in four straight games claiming his third NBA title, but his first in the Bay Area, and his first as a franchise since 1956. One year later, the Raiders would finally win the Super Bowl. The 76 Raiders, which many consider one of the greatest teams in NFL history, went through the season on a mission, going 13-1 and avenged their only loss of the season by beating the Patriots in the divisional round of the playoffs that year. Then in the AFC Championship game, they dispatched the Steelers finally to reach the Super Bowl where they took on the Minnesota Vikings. The game, <laughs> to be honest, wasn't much of a game. The Raiders trounced the Vikings 33-14 for the Raiders' first Lombardi Trophy. Now if you keep a score at home, a team from Oakland had won a major sports championship every year from 1972 through 1976. Now that's not bad for a team, for a city, with no there there. While the Warriors and A's sort of fell off over time during the remainder of the decade of the 70s, the Raiders continued to be a constant winner. However, by 1980, even the Raiders were starting to decline. Yet, an even bigger issue began to come up, as Al Davis was threatening to move his Raiders out of Oakland in pursuit of a new stadium. Yet, all of those rumors and they were just rumors and hearsay at the time, actually did not distract the silver and black. In 1980, the AFC playoffs, the Raiders, as a wild card, defeated the Oilers, then the Browns, and then outlasted the San Diego Chargers to advance to New Orleans for Super Bowl 15. With NFL Comeback Player of the Year Jim Plunkett's MVP performance, the Raiders stunned Philadelphia Eagles 27-10 for the Raiders' second Super Bowl victory and the first by a wildcard team. Yet after triumph were tears as the Raiders, the first pro team to call Oakland home, left the city and took up residence in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, life went on in Oakland. And by the late 1980s, the A's had been cannon fodder for the American League during the decade that were Ken and Father during the American League during the decade were back with a vengeance, thus beginning the era of the Bash Brothers. Led by manager Tony La Russa, the Oakland A's became a fan favorite all across the country, not just in the Bay Area. Led by home run hitters of Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire, and the pitching of Dave Stewart and Dennis Eckersley, the A's brought back memories of their glory years of the 1970s. And just like their counterparts from 20 years earlier, 
The A's would win three consecutive American League pennants, yet they would only win one World Series. In 1988, the A's would be victimized by one of the most improbable home runs in World Series history when Kirk Gibson of the Dodgers, and on one leg no less, delivered a blowing game one that the A's never seemed to recover from. In 1989, the A's overcame the San Francisco Giants and the Loma Prieta earthquake for their fourth world championship since moving to Oakland. And in 1990, the A's were devastated by the pitching of Jose Rio and the Cincinnati Reds sweeping the A's in their most recent champ World Series appearance. So by the mid-90s, the Raiders were returned to Oakland, conjuring up images of their glory years of the 1970s, but it just didn't seem to be the same. From the 1990s to the early part of the 2010s, Oakland was, a, as a sports town, seemed to be living on borrowed time. Yet, there was some success. The Raiders went back to the Super Bowl after the 2002 season. The A's were a consistent American League power, but it just didn't, but it just seemed like a flickering flame that had lost some of its fuel. Yet Oakland will remind sports fans across the country of its passion for their teams. In 2015, the Golden State Warriors put Oakland back on the championship map one last time. With perhaps the greatest jump shooter in the history of basketball, Steph Curry along with backcourt mate Klay Thompson and coach Steve Kerr, the Warriors were resurrected and they became a basketball power for the first time since the Mitch Richmond, Tim Hardaway, and Chris Mullen days of run TMC of the 1980s and 90s. 40 years after the Warriors defeated the Bullets in the 75 Finals, Golden State parlayed its 67-15 record, the best record in team history to that point, advanced to the NBA playoffs, and then after sweeping the Pelicans, outlasting the Memphis Grizzlies, and getting past the Houston Rockets, the Warriors were back. And they were willing to do battle with the Eastern Conference champion Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James in the finals. After splitting the first two games in Oakland, Cleveland winning game three, the Warriors would win three straight games to claim the franchise's fourth title and their second since moving to Oakland, beating the Cavs in six games. This would be the first of five consecutive NBA Finals appearances for the Warriors and in that span winning three world championships. The city of Oakland was back on the championship mat, but there were rumblings that this would only be temporary. One by one, the teams that called Oakland home were beginning to make plans to leave, beginning with the current power in the Bay Area, the Warriors. 2019, Golden State would leave Oakland, leave the Oakland Coliseum Arena, now referred to as Oracle Arena, and move back across the Bay to San Francisco to the state-of-the-art Chase Center. The next year, the Raiders, who had returned to Oakland in the mid-90s, once again bid farewell to the Bay Area, this time for good, and relocated to Las, to Las Vegas and their multi-billion dollar stadium on the Las Vegas Strip. And for the A's, well, it's almost a foregone conclusion that the Athletics will join the Raiders in Sin City, possibly as soon as next baseball season. The city of Oakland is totally unlike the cities with sports teams on the West Coast. Oakland is gritty, blue collar, in your face, and has more in common with Pittsburgh or Cleveland, or for some of a certain age, Brooklyn. The fans will certainly miss their teams that fought and bled and won and lost on the East Bay. 
But I personally think the world of sports would miss Oakland even more. Coming up as we continue to reminisce about the city of Oakland and their place in sports history, we will count down the five greatest moments in Oakland sports history, including a major upset in the championship round of a league that doesn't see a lot of upsets. The Raiders winning their first league championship in convincing fashion and perhaps the most unbelievable finish in NFL postseason history. And to close out the show, we will send a shout out to a man that when I was in junior high and high school, he was my inspiration to become a sports broadcaster. His famous handlebar mustache and incitable ways in the booth was only overshadowed by one of the most famous catchphrases in all of sports. To me, he was the voice of Oakland sports, quite simply, my idol. Coming up, this is Historically Speaking Sports, a proud member of the Sports History Network. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row One Shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full row one catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello, welcome back to the program. You are tuned into the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. In this episode, we are celebrating the city of Oakland, California as a sports town. And before we get back to the show, here's a quick word for one of our sponsors here at the Sports History Network, and that is Home Field Apparel. Do you feel that the summer heat out there it's not just the sun, it's actually the thrill of the upcoming college football season stoking those coals. So get ready for the season and dive into the history books with Home Field, the premium collegiate apparel brand from Indianapolis. Home Field crafts incredibly comfortable gear designed with iconic vintage nods to over 150 colleges, a library of history right there on your chest. Homefield is the Indiana Jones of collegiate apparel, uncovering hidden gems from your school's archives, unique mascots, logos, and even unforgettable moments frozen in time. So visit homefieldapparel.com and shop 
for the archives. Homefield Apparel, where comfort, nostalgia, and the spirit of college football history unite. Again, that's homefieldapparel.com. Now, when you consider the Raiders, the Athletics, and the Warriors, and to a lesser extent, the California Golden Seals, Oakland has a unique place in sports history and sports culture across the United States. So, to pay homage to the city of Oakland and some of its legendary teams and athletes that have called the East Bay home, we will count down the five most important and most memorable moments in the history of Oakland sports. So, to preface this, I had one prerequisite, and that is all of the events took place in Oakland. So we will not revisit any of the Super Bowl wins by the Raiders or Golden State's 1975 NBA Finals victory or none of these events were no less spectacular and no less loved by Oakland and their fans. So with that said, here we are with the top five moments in Oakland sports history that actually took place in Oakland. Number five. The Oakland Raiders win their first and only AFL championship. It would have been hard to imagine the Oakland Raiders being the toast of the American Football League when the team began operations in 1960. Known as the Orphans of the East Bay, they suffered through some rocky circumstances, bad ownership situations, and even worse stadium issues. Yet by New Year's Eve of 1967, all of that seemed to be ancient history as the Raiders were playing in their first AFL title game against the resurgent Houston Oilers. The Raiders had came into the game with an impressive 13-1 regular season record, actually the best regular season mark of any team in the history of the AFL. Led by quarterback Darryl LaMonica and receivers Fred Bolitnikoff and Warren Wells and a suffocating defense nicknamed the 11 Angry Men. They were led by the likes of Ben Davison, Carlton Oates, Dave Grayson, and Hall of Famer Willie Brown. The Oilers, on the other hand, reached the championship game with a meager 9-4-1 record, but outpaid, but paced by the running back of Hoyle Granger and the passing of quarterback Pete Bethard. The Oilers were in the AFL championship game for the first time since losing that double overtime classic against the Dallas Texans in 1962. Quarterback for those Orleans proved to be a pivotal proved to be pivotal in this championship game. George Blanda, now the Raider kicker, along with being the backup quarterback, connected on four field goals as the Raiders trounced the Oilers 40-7 in the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum. Along with the kicking of Blanda, it was the Raiders running game and their defense which was key. The running game, led by Hewitt Dixon's 144 yards rushing, racked up 263 yards overall as the Raiders just outpassed and outran the Houston Oilers. A big chunk of Hewitt's yardage, however, came on one play as he delivered the game's signature moment when he rumbled 69 yards for a touchdown in the second quarter. As well as the defense, Ben Davidson and company they forced three turnovers, and the Oilers didn't get on the scoreboard until midway in the fourth. The game took place actually the same day as the infamous Ice Bowl game between the Cowboys and the Packers in Green Bay. And to say the least, it was slightly warmer in Oakland as opposed to Green Bay. Number four, the Oakland A's win their third consecutive World Series. On October 17, 1974, 
the Oakland A's were playing the Los Angeles Dodgers in the first ever All-California World Series. Oakland was poised to win his third consecutive World Series. Only the Yankees had ever won three straight World Championships. But Game 5, it was Oakland and they started Blue Moon Odom on the mound. The Dodgers countered with Don Sutton. The A's were taking an early 2-0 lead in the game, which included a solo home run by Ray Fossey. Yet the Dodgers would tie the game in a six. Yet in the bottom of the seventh, Joe Rudy would hit a leadoff home run off Mike Marshall, which proved to be just enough for series' most valuable player, Raleigh Fingers, to work with. Fingers would finish off the Dodgers to win 3-2 three, three and their third consecutive world championship. Number three, the Heidi game. Now there are rare instances where a single game could change the course of a sport. Yet it's even more of an uncommon occurrence for a game to change the way we watch that sport. Such was the case on November 17, 1968 at the Oakland Coliseum when the homestanding Raiders were taking on the powerful New York Jets and Joe Namath. The game itself was a penalty-filled shootout between Namath and LaMonica. In this high-scoring affair, the game ran long. So long, in fact, that NBC decided to preempt the final two minutes of the game and return to regularly scheduled programming. So, at exactly 7 p.m. Eastern Time, with the Raiders trailing 32-29, with two minutes remaining, the game was shut off in favor of the movie Heidi, the story of the little Swiss mountain girl. When the game was preempted, no one on the East Coast or anywhere watching the game on NBC saw the Raiders score two touchdowns in a space of nine seconds to beat the Jets 43-32, possibly the greatest finish to a pro football game no one saw coming and conversely no one saw. Soon after, soon after the phone lines were jammed with people and fans wanting to know who won the game and NBC provided that with a crawler at the bottom of the screen doing one of the climactic moments of the movie. In its aftermath, the NFL would contractually stimulate, stipulate that all game telecasts would be shown to their conclusion in the markets of the visiting team. Quick postscript to this. In 1997, the Heidi game was voted the most memorable regular season game in pro football history. And it happened in Oakland. Number two, the Warriors defeat the Bulls to advance to the 1975 NBA Finals. It would have been no surprise that the Golden State Warriors by the mid-70s would have felt a little left out. They had seen their baseball counterparts in Oakland win three consecutive championships and their gridiron brethren to be one of the elite teams in the NFL for the previous eight seasons. In 1975, the Golden State Warriors were looking to bring an NBA title to the Bay Area. And after going through the regular season, the Warriors, despite having a record of 48-34, had the best record in the Western Conference and was one step away from their first NBA Finals appearance since 1967, where they were defeated by the Philadelphia 76ers. Yet, to get to the Finals, they had to get past the gritty Chicago Bulls, led by Bob Butterbean Love, Southern University graduate, by the way, Jerry Sloan, Norm Van Leer, and former Warriors center all-star Nate Thurman. Yet the Golden, yet Golden State, coached by former Warriors guard Al Adels, battled through the Bulls through six grueling games to set up a Game 7 at the Oakland Coliseum Arena. On May 14, 1975, a capacity crowd was on hand to see the Warriors take that next step, and they did just that. Led by rookie Jamal Wilkes' 23 points and Hall of Famer's Rick Barry's 22, 
The Warriors punched their ticket to the NBA Finals, beating the Bulls 83-79. That Warriors team were going to sweep the powerful Washington Bullets who won 60 games that season in four games in what many consider one of the biggest upsets in NBA Finals history. And the number one moment in Oakland sports history to actually take place in Oakland? The Sea of Hands, the 1974 AFC Divisional Playoff between the Raiders and the Dolphins. Leading into the 1974 AFC Divisional Round of the Playoffs, sports writers called the matchup between the visiting Miami Dolphins and the Oakland Raiders Super Bowl eight and a half. The Dolphins, who were two-time Super Bowl champions, would travel to the jam-packed Oakland Alameda County Coliseum to face the Raiders, who were perennial AFC power. With the crowd in a total frenzy, the Raiders kicked off to Dolphins receiver Nat Moore, and he returned it 96 yards for a Dolphin touchdown. In recalling the game, Raiders coach John Madden said, quote, the fans were going crazy, and then the Dolphins scored and they never even had a chance to sit down." Unquote. The game turned into a back and forth struggle with big plays on both sides. Midway through the fourth quarter, Raiders quarterback Ken Stabler threw a deep pass to Cliff Branch. Branch eluded a pair of Miami defensive backs with a diving catch. He got back on his feet before any of the Dolphins were able to touch him down, made a move, and sprinted into the end zone. The 72-yard touchdown pass gave the Raiders the lead at 21 to 19. The Dolphins regained possession and drove down the field with their running attack led by Larry Zonka. Yet it was his unheralded backfield mate Benny Malone who became the key contributor to the drive. With a little over a minute remaining in regulation, Malone took a handoff from quarterback Bob Greasy and ran right. Malone, going down the near sideline, broke several tackles and scored the apparent winning touchdown. The Dolphins were now holding a 26-21 lead. Now it was up to the Raiders and Stabler to drive down the field to score a touchdown and down by five, a field goal would do them no good. But Stabler's left arm drove the Raiders into, the, into Dolphin territory with short passes to Branch and Fred Bolitnikoff. Then, with a little over 30 seconds remaining, the Raiders had the ball on the Dolphin 8-yard line, and that set the stage for one of the most incredible plays in NFL postseason history. Describing the play, radio announcer Bill King. 35 seconds left, first and goal for Oakland, they trail 26-21. The promised land is 8 yards away. Branch to the left against Chucky, bullet the top to the right against Coley. That's a pass to Stabler. Look it, look it, look it. He runs. He's at the 15. He throws. It is. A touchdown Raiders. Touchdown Raiders. I can't even see the receiver. Clarence Davis. It looks like Clarence Davis. He's being mobbed. Stabler was hit as he threw. He was falling down. Stabler threw the ball in a loop. I still can't tell. Is it Davis? I thought it was. It is a touchdown. Everybody in the booth, just here it is. Davis got it. Everybody in the booth believed with me it was Davis, but he went down in a heap of tacklers and then was mobbed by fans. The Raiders have taken the lead 27-26 when Stabler had to loop the ball up because he was hit as he threw. It looked like he might have been lobbing it into the promised land for Miami. But no, Mike Cole and 
couldn't get there. Davis got there first, and it was the Raiders' promised land. Find the kick. The conversion is good. With that incredible play, the Raiders took the lead with 26 seconds remaining. The Dolphins would get one last shot, yet there would be no Miami heroics. They have the right ball. They are 67 yards away from a touchdown. They need three to win it, though. That's important, but there's only 21 seconds. Winsor retreats to the left. He goes way up the middle. Intercepted to the piano at the 50. Time running down. 13 seconds to play. Oakland football. And I think Oakland victory. It's 13 seconds away from confirmation. The crowd going wild here at the Coliseum. Madden, in his delirium of joy, goes about 20 yards out onto the field to welcome the defenders and Villapiano. Villapiano gets Madden the football. He displays it for all to see. With Phil Villapiano's interception, the Raiders defeated the Dolphins 28-26 in a game known forever as the Sea of Hands game, the most dramatic postseason win in Oakland Raiders history. Coming up after this short break, we're going to be sending a shout out to the announcer you just heard. Bill King was simply the voice of Oakland sports. With his holy Toledo catchphrase and famous handlebar mustache, King was more than just a radio broadcaster. If the city of Oakland had a voice, it would sound like Bill King. More on his career after this timeout. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. Give me a second to talk about Joe Zagorski's pro football in the 1970s. In the 70s, the sport of pro football grew in popularity like never before. The game became more modern, more technologically savvy, and thanks to the tinkering of the rules throughout the decade, the product that one saw in pro football made the struggle on the field so much more exciting to watch. When you hear Joe Zagorski talk about pro football in the 1970s, it will bring you back to a time and place where your recollections of the 70s are joyfully relived once again. Joe explores many different facets and elements of the 70s, like the players, the teams, the games, the controversies, and the legacies that surround the decade. Take a listen to Joe Zagorski, an NFL author and host of the Pro Football in the 1970s podcast. It's just one of the great podcasts available through the Sports History Network. Check them out at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, welcome back to the show, and you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we celebrate sports from back in the day. And to close out the show, we take this time to send a shout-out to a person or event of historical significance. And since we're talking about the exploits of the city of Oakland, I felt that it would be criminal not to talk about this man who I consider the voice of the city of Oakland. Stabler play faking, back to set up, going deep to Branch again, he's got a step, touchdown Raiders! 
That voice you just heard was the legendary Hall of Fame voice of pro sports on the East Bay who had broadcasted games for the Raiders, the A's, and the Warriors, which spanned five decades. He is actually one of the main reasons why I wanted to become a sports broadcaster since I was nine years old. Watching Raiders highlights on NFL films and as his booming voice described the action along with the incredible music, I was immediately drawn to and that became an inspiration to me and all the way through college where I studied his career. The man you just heard of course was Bill King. His famous catchphrase, Holy Toledo, is instantaneously recognizable to sports fans of a certain age. And he was an essential part of Oakland's glory years as a pro sports city on the West Coast. Wilbur King was born in Bloomington, Illinois on October the 6th, 1927. And after World War II, King moved to the West Coast and got into broadcasting. By the late 1950s, he became one of the voices of the newly relocated San Francisco Giants, joining future legendary voices of the Bay Area, Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons. He became the sole voice of another team that came westward from the East Coast, and that was the San Francisco Warriors. His stint with the Warriors began in 1962, and for the next 21 seasons, he would be the voice of the Warriors, broadcasting games that featured the likes of Rick Barry, Jamal Wilkes, Al Adels, Butch Beard, and Nate Thurman. During his stint with the Warriors, Bill King got a very interesting and perhaps dubious distinction. During one game, his on-air protest of an official's call provoked the game official to assess a technical foul against the Warriors. Yes, his on-air rant about an official's call caused the referee to give Golden State a technical foul. Also, within the same rant, he used an, an expletive to, quote, describe the official's call, unquote. And if you know anything about Bill King, you sort of already know what expletive he used. Yet he was by far better known for his work with the Silver and Black. And he became the Raiders, and he came to the Raiders actually at a perfect time. His first season as play-by-play -play man was in 1966. And for the next 27 years, Bill King was just as recognizable for the Raiders as would be Al Davis, John Madden, and Ken Stabler. One of the greatest seasons in Raiders history was the season of 1970, where the Raiders won games in remarkable fashion, seemingly every week. A couple of games from that incredible season comes to mind. On November the 8th, the Raiders were hosting the Cleveland Browns, and with precious time remaining, the score tied. Bill King described what happens next. Seven seconds to go. They're going to try a field goal from 53 yards. The odds against this must be about 76 million to a half. Well, George did it from 48 last week with maybe three feet to spare. Left hash mark. Stabler will hold. Stabler not as experienced holding as LaMonica. Fourth down. Here it is. Snap. Spotted. It's kicked. That's got a chance. That is good. It's good. Holy Toledo. The place has gone wild. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. The Oakland Raiders 23. The Cleveland Browns 20. George Bland has just been elected king of the world. One month later, the Raiders were, as Bill King described it, they were hanging from the cliff again. The Raiders were on the road at Shea Stadium in New York playing the Jets. 
the Raiders were down to one last play. The Raiders get the ball on the 32 and 33. Holy Toledo, one more shot they have. Well, this is stringing it right to the end. They may not have another one. It's 13-7 New York. Eight seconds to go. La Monica comes in. Wells is back in for Boletnikov. He's to the left. Sherman to the right. Loose quarterback coverage. They're way off. They don't want to give up the bomb. La Monica's back. He looks. He's throwing deep for Wells in traffic. It's better room. Wells catches the ball. Wells has caught the ball. Wells has caught a touchdown. And it's tied. 13-13. Three. New York Jets. Three of them are all over Wells. They batted them all up in the air. Wells caught it. Falling down. The Raiders. I hope for it. One second left, the conversion to be tied. This is ridiculous. This is utterly ridiculous. The Raiders had a chance to win it if Brenda can check the conversion. Spotted. Checked. It is good. The game is over, and the Oakland Raiders have come out of nowhere, out of absolute utter and certain defeat, to defeat the New York Jets. <laughs> and the final scoreboard shows the Raiders 14, the Jets 13. Yes, indeed, the magic of Bill King. Yet, I feel his most famous call came early in the season in 1978 when the Raiders pulled off a miracle play so miraculous, quote-unquote, that the NFL made a rule to make it illegal now. The play would be forever known as the Holy Roller. And, of course, it came at the expense of my San Diego Chargers. Ten seconds left. Boletnikoff out. Bradshaw in the ball in the 14. Oakland trails 20 to 14. The crowd takes up a chant of defense. Robisky and Danizak are the back. Slot right. Branch inside. Bradshaw. Saber back. Here comes the rush. He sidesteps. Can he throw? He can't. The ball flipped forward is loose. A wild scramble. Two seconds on the clock. Castro grabbing the ball. It is Lola fumble. Castro is recovered in the end zone. The Oakland Raiders have scored on the most zany, unbelievable, absolutely impossible dream of a play. Stabler, while being hit, the ball squirted forward. Madden is on the field. He wants to know if it's real. They said yes. Get your big butt out of here. He does. The ball went wildly bounding inside the tent. Curve throws on the field. Stabler is wrong to have been hit and fumbled. Banasak knocked the ball forward. It bounded crazily. I'm looking at a replay now. Ultimately, Casper fell on it in the end zone. On the replay, you see Banasak go after it. It's knocked away as he shovels it forward. It's bounding inside the five. Casper flips it with the fingers and falls on it. And I have to tell you, I think Kenny Stabler threw the ball away. Belt high with a little flip and got away. There it is. The kick by man. It's up. It's good. There's no time left. There's nothing real in the world anymore. The Raiders won the football game. 52,000 people minus a few lonely Raider fans are stunned. The Chargers are standing, looking at each other, looking at the sky. They don't believe it. Nobody believes it. I don't know if the Raiders believe it. It's not real. A man would be a fool to ever try and write a drama and make you believe it. And now, this one will be relived forever. And even though it happened 
about 45 years ago, it still hurts. But it's a great call though, and legendary. Also, Bill King was truly a renaissance man. He listened to opera, classical music, and was a voracious reader and a student of Russian history. He spent his off time, whenever there was for him, in Sausalito, California. He would go on long sailing trips during the off season. Unfortunately, Bill King died in October of 2005 at the age of 78. Yet his legacy with the Raiders and the A's and the Warriors go on to this day. And even though those teams are either located elsewhere or on the verge of relocation, Bill King and those teams will be forever intertwined as he will always be the voice of Oakland. And that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And if you please, 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 if you haven't done so already, please subscribe wherever you hear this podcast. And if you also, if you want to drop us a line, you could do so at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. Or you could check us out on, in, on Twitter at historicallysp2. And please remember, don't keep this great podcast a secret. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your neighbor. Heck, tell a passerby on the street if you think they like sports history. And this episode, just ironically, comes from the newly remodeled Bill King Memorial Studios in the sports wing of TM4 Enterprises located in scenic suburban Atlanta in the shadow of Stone Mountain. And until next time, stay cool and stay blessed. See you later. <laughs>